All right, well, welcome everybody. It is so good to see you. It is good to be together. We welcome those of you who are checking this out online or maybe on the Moon Campus or in our classic service. We're glad to have everybody together. Before we actually jump into the message, I do have a, a couple of things that I would like to highlight. And one of those is that uh, most of you will have received a letter from us here at the church. We're coming right to the end of our fiscal year. And as we do so, we also have this unique need that has popped up for us. And that is that there are two AC units, or HVAC units here at the church. And again, many of you have already received this letter that went out at the same time. There are actually three that service the, the live auditorium, which is where I'm speaking from. There are three, and two of them went down, which is why in recent weeks it's been super hot. For those of you who are present in the room, it is not super hot. It feels awesome. They've already been replaced. Yes, that's good. And it's actually a little chilly in here. It's just kind of showing off. It's like 90-something outside. And uh, so that's been done, but the need still exists. And uh, so for wherever you're checking this out, we are inviting you, asking you to participate with us in meeting the significance of that need. Just two units alone after price checking and negotiating, all that is still like 55 grand. And we're coming into the end of the fiscal year where there's always a little bit of need. And uh, so if as we come to the end of June, if the Lord would lead you in some way, we would just invite you to prayerfully consider how you might help us to meet those needs as we come down to the end. And so I commit that to you. I ask you to consider how God might be leading you in that. And the other thing is, what I would like to do on this Father's Day weekend is that I would like to pray for all of the men of Pathway before we jump into the message today. Again, we are so grateful for our men. We're grateful for who God has brought into our midst. But uh, there are a lot of challenges, and there are a lot of pressures, and there are a lot of things that can lead us off in all sorts of directions, and we want to be focused, and uh, I think the best way to do that is through prayer. And so what I want to ask us to do is to have, where regardless of what service that you are in, what campus you are on, if all the men would please stand up. And I want to pray over you, and as I do, go ahead, men, if you would just stand up. It's not just dads, it's men. If you would just stand up, and uh, what we want to do is pray over you, and for all the ladies who are in the room, or children, if uh, you would just kind of reach out your hand as though you're laying your hand on them. And maybe you can even touch one, and you can just really do that. Um, but I want to pray over our men for just a moment before we go any further. Can we pray? Heavenly Father, we are so very grateful for what you have been doing at Pathway. We're grateful for the men that you have brought into our midst, and we want to ask that you would use them in dynamic and in great ways in our midst and beyond. Lord, we pray for all of the men. We, we pray that their faith in you would be strong. Lord, if there are some who have yet to establish faith with you, we ask that you might move in their heart and their spirit, that they would be drawn to you. We pray that they would all look to you 
that they would be examples to all of those who are around as, as people look on and wonder what does it mean to be a Christian man that they would see and that they would be moved by the testimony that's in front of us. Lord, we too pray that our men would be witnesses, that they would be strong, that they would be bold in their faith in proclaiming it to others. Lord, we pray for those men who are single. Lord, we pray that they might find their model in the greatest man who ever walked this earth as a single man, Jesus himself, that his attributes, that his character would become that of our single men. Lord, we, we just pray that they would press into all of life and engage in, in dynamic ways where you have placed them for this time, whether it would be a, a circumstance they would be in for a long time or whether it's something that might be shortly coming to an end, end. Lord, while they are there, we pray that you would use this opportunity in their lives to move them closer to you and closer to others as well. Lord, we pray for our married men, that they would honor their spouse. We pray that they would serve well in their homes, that they would lead well in their homes, that they too might be an example. And Lord, we pray for our dads, for the fathers who are listening right now, who are standing, who are being prayed over. Lord, we pray that they might point their children to you, that they would set an example in the home of what it means to be a godly man, what it means to be a godly servant of Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that they would live a life of love toward their children, that they would be slow to anger, that they would be abounding in good deeds, and that our homes would be strong because of the model that they see in the dads, in the, in the fathers. And Lord, we pray also for the grandfathers. We pray that as they seek to pass on truth and love, that they might leave a legacy of godliness with their and to their and before their grandchildren. Lord, in some circumstances, they are in a situation where, where they are the example of Christ that a child is able to see because maybe it somehow is missing in a generation in between. And Lord, there are so many who are so burdened for their grandchildren, and we pray that you might give them success in, in leading even from a generation removed. Lord, we're grateful for ultimately that we have an example in, in you, in our good, good Father, and we ask that we might look first and foremost to who you are to lead us, to guide us, to understand what it means to be one, living out the character of God, living out your character before others. Lord, I thank you for our men, and I just pray this blessing upon everyone, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat, if you would, please. And let's continue to pray over one another as well. How many of you have had the experience of getting into an Uber or into a Lyft car or maybe into a taxi and you're in there and it's like, should I talk to this guy, this driver? Should I be silent or should, should I pretend like I'm really busy on my phone so that I don't have to talk but I don't feel so weird here? It's, it's kind of a situation you don't exactly know what to do because it can be really, really awkward. And I'm sure many of you have been in this situation. In fact, imagine being the driver who every time you pick somebody up, you have to do that. I'm kind of wondering, do we have anybody who drives an Uber or a Lyft here in the room? All right, apparently they're all 
picking up people for church. All right, but uh, I, I don't see any hands. Maybe there are some. I know there are some at the church, but I, I guess not here in this service. All right, well, there was one Lyft driver who was tired of all of that awkwardness, so he came up with a plan so that it wouldn't be awkward with the people who came into his, his car. In fact, that they might have a little bit of fun with it. And so what he did is he posted on the back of his seats some different ride options. And the people who got in could pick one of those ride options. He had 10 of them. One of the ride options they could choose for their ride would be the funny ride. And that was where he would just tell jokes and embarrassing stories about himself for the whole ride. And they could make that choice and it just removes the awkwardness. Or they could choose the creepy ride which is where he doesn't say anything to them. He just stares at them in the rearview mirror the whole trip. I've been in one of those creepy rides, and I didn't choose it either. Um, that's one. You could, uh, one of his choices would be that you could go on the karaoke ride where you both sing at the top of your lungs, achy, breaky, hard until you get to the, or whatever you would choose, until you would get to the destination. Another one that he had available was the predictable ride, which is where you would ask, so how long have you been driving Lyft, right? Because that's what you'd presume that you, you might add just to kind of break the ice when you would get in. And those are good, and he got a lot, he's gotten a lot of fantastic reviews from people because of his different different options, and it took away some of the awkwardness. I thought there were a couple others that he potentially could add to his list there as well. I thought uh, one of those that he might choose would be what we're going to call this. We were going to call it the therapy ride, where you get in and you just tell your problems to him the whole time until you get to the destination. Another one would be the fake identity ride, where you don't let the driver in on it. You just pretend to be something you totally are not. It's just total fiction. You can pretend that you're a senator or a rapper. You could tell them that you play for the Pittsburgh Pirates because nobody knows who any of those guys are this year anyway. And so it could be just about anything that you would choose. There are a lot of different choices that he's trying to give people to take away some of that awkwardness. A lot of different choices. Today we're going to be thinking about different choices. In fact, the, the title of this message is Critical Choices. And the reason that I'm naming it that is because we're going to be looking at some choices that are critical in a couple of different ways. Critical in part because they are very important. The choices are quite essential, but also critical choices in that some people, many people in fact, have been critical of the choices that we're going to look at. Now the place that we find this is in Romans chapter 9. Open up those scripture journals, your Bible, and uh, take out the outline. However you're going to take some notes on this, I'd encourage you to do so. There's some very important questions we're going to be taking a look at, and I think you're going to want to jot some things down as we go. But Romans chapter 9 is where we've come to in our studies through the book of Romans. What we like to do here at Pathway is we like to dig into the Word of God. This is where truth is found. This is where guidance for life is found. And so we don't want to just be offering some opinions. We want to take a look at what God has told us. And so we're making our way, just marching all the way through the book of Romans. And we have come to Romans 9, which is honestly kind of a difficult chapter. In fact, there are some, you can look at some people's um, kind of series on Romans, and they completely omit chapter 9. It's like they skip over from chapter 8 to chapter 12. Chapter 12 is where we're going to pick up a lot of practical advice on, on what God or what Paul says, here's what we ought to do based on all of these things that we know to be true. But some people just skip completely 
over it. Romans 9 is its own unique sort of animal, and I think you'll see that as we make our way along. It's a big departure from Romans chapter 8 that we finished up last week. Romans chapter 8 is soaring as a chapter. It is beautiful. It is encouraging. It's where, it's where Paul tells us that all of these things are true of us. Things are true in the present and that things are that we can hope in for the future and how God will never leave us alone and forsake us and, and all of these awesome things. And it's beautiful. In fact, the way that it wrapped up, let's just dip back into it again. It concluded with Paul declaring, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Those are some of the most inspiring words in all of the Bible, right at the end of chapter 8. And then we turn the page to chapter 9, and there's a completely different tone that we see, that we pick up on. It's just a complete change, and you're going to see it as we make our way along. Paul knows that some of his readers had their doubts, had their skepticism about God, about some of the choices that he had made, or some of the choices that he hadn't made, about whether or not all these things that were said about God being so loving, to never separate them from the love of God. We see at the end of chapter 8, they're like, Really? Because I'm not completely sure that I see that. And Paul knows that there are some questions that are in their mind. And so Paul doesn't wait for them to ask them. He just comes right out in chapter 9 and says, all right, I know that this is probably something that you're pondering. So let me just go ahead and dig into it. And it's very helpful, I think, because the same, the same issues that are brought up here by Paul for his Roman readers in the first century, they're questions that you probably have today. They're questions that a lot of us continue to wrestle with today. And so if you're one who sometimes feels kind of skeptical or you've got your doubts that rise up in you about what God has done or what he hasn't done or why he made this choice over that choice, then uh, this is a good week to be here. And we're just going to kind of piggyback on what he has to say to those Roman readers and consider them for ourselves because they can be very instructive. Now, We're going to get to those questions here in just a moment, but before we do so, he actually begins this chapter with a word of personal testimony, and we want to take a look at that because it kind of sets the stage for these questions he's going to start asking, but first he gives us some important information. Paul's personal testimony begins chapter 9 and verse 1. If you take a look at it, Paul writes, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow in unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. These are very powerful words from Paul. We know, we've seen it already, how valuable Paul considers the relationship that he has with God to be. And here he's saying, you know what? I would give all of that up so that these brothers of mine, so my kinsmen, so my fellow countrymen, so my fellow Jews might come into relationship with God. That's how strongly he feels about it, which is incredible to even read, knowing how important he understood relationship with God to be. But that's what he says. And, of course, these people that he is wanting to have drawn into fellowship are people that we've already 
heard and read about, and the whole Old Testament tells us about these Israelites and how there are so many blessings that are there. Paul goes on, he recounts some of that, beginning in verse 4, he says, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. God made a promise to Israel to bless them and to turn them into a great nation. And Paul says, you know what? God has more than lived up to his end of that bargain, mentioning all of these privileges here and reminding people of exactly what God has done. But what Paul knows is that even that is going to be qu- bring up questions in the mind of his readers because they are going to say, well, as we look through the landscape, There are all these promises that have been given to Israel, but yet it looks and we know that not everybody is living out that promise. So what's the problem, God? There seems to be a bit of a disconnect, which leads to the first question that Paul answers, but the question would be one that we might state like this, might be one that you struggle with also. First is this, is God unable to keep his promises? Is God unable to keep His promises? If there were promises given to the Jews, but they're not living in them, then what's the issue? Did God fail? And Paul just goes ahead and he takes that one head on. Just right as he comes out of the chute here in verse 6. Look at it. Here's what he says. He says, But it is not as though the Word of God has failed. It's like, all right, I know what's on your mind, so let me just, before you even ask the question, let me just tell you, it's not like the Word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but, quoting, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. What Paul is saying is very simply that just because someone is counted as a physical descendant of Israel because they were born a Jew, it doesn't mean that they are naturally a part of God's spiritual Israel. That's what he's saying. As far as as it's been from the very start, Paul is saying it's not a matter of who are you or who you are, like who your father is that makes the difference, like who's your daddy. It's not that. It's whose are you? not who are you and the descendant, it's whose are you as in who is your Lord. Throughout both the Old Testament and the New Testament, God has made it very clear that we come into fellowship with God based on our faith, not where we were born, who we were born to, based on our faith and our commitment to Christ. And we can still get tripped up with that today. We can have that same problem. It's easy to buy into this thinking that if, if my parents were people of faith and they had me in church basically every week that I'm golden. Or if I've gone through certain experiences, maybe of baptism or of confirmation or of some other religious rite, that automatically I'm going to be included. But Paul is warning that people who are trusting in those sorts of externals and not personal faith and surrender to Christ are trusting in the wrong things. And many people today are exactly in that circumstance. They believe that they are in because of what their heritage might happen to be or the traditions that they grew up in. And what Paul is saying is absolutely not. Now, does that mean that God's unable to keep His promises? Not at all. God is perfect at keeping His promises. We need to understand what the promises are that He's given, though. 
And that's where some of them shrunk back and why this question is on their mind. It's not a matter of ethnicity or tradition. It's a matter of personal faith. That's what he's trying to draw out. Then he goes on and he gives two examples to explain it further. Verse 9, For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, and had done nothing either good or bad, keep that in mind, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. Now understand that not as hated as in the emotion that we would feel, but rather as not chosen as opposed to this, this brother. Paul is demonstrating that there are these two families, and the offspring of the families are both Israelites. They're both Jews, but they both are not ones who are going to experience the spiritual promise that comes from God. In the case of Abraham and Sarah, they've got a couple of kids, Isaac and Ishmael, but Isaac is the one through whom the promise of God falls. Isaac and Rebekah have kids, Jacob and Esau. Jacob is the one not Esau, who is a recipient of the promise. Paul is just saying, here, let me give you a couple examples of how this works itself out. And at this point, Paul's intention is just to let us know that the choice that God has made was completely God's. It was of his to make this decision. That's who had the choice in his hands. He says the choice was made before the kids were even born and before they had done good or Bad. That's very important for us to understand. See, God didn't look down the road and say, oh, he's going to choose me. He's going to be the one that's going to turn out well, so I'm going to elect him. I'm going to make my choice based on what I know that ultimately he will do. That's not how this is going down at all. It was his sovereign, critical choice, if you will, that he is making. Now, that doesn't mean that the choice was arbitrary. God did not just flip a coin to decide who is chosen. He didn't play rock, paper, scissors with God the Father to decide this one's going to be chosen and that one is not. God has his reasons and they are good and right even if we're not able to see them. Even if we're not in a place to understand why he has made those choices, it's not because this one's good and that one's bad. There is a reason. There is a rationale. Because we don't understand it, it doesn't mean that it's arbitrary. It doesn't mean that it's wrong. It doesn't mean that it's unfair. It just means that we don't have the light of understanding to completely make sense of what has been done and hasn't. In fact, it's the best of all options that he is making. If God had looked at us and made his decision on who should be chosen based on what he saw would be good in us ultimately, then ultimately what is being done is that God is making his choice based on something that we have done to earn our way to God, which is going to be demeaning of Jesus. It's going to be demeaning of what is done on the cross because we're saying that we are the one who essentially worked for our salvation when what all of us know is that what has happened or the way to find and experience God's favor is through the work of Jesus plus nothing. Nothing. That's right. It's nothing that we bring to the table. And it's important that we would understand that. And that's why Paul says, before they were even born, before they'd done good or bad, God made his choice. So, when it comes to the question, is God unable to keep his promise, Paul makes it very clear, no! He's completely able to keep his promise. 
God's promise is his choice or election, if you want. It's perfectly carried out. But he knows, all right, I've given that answer, but it probably brings up another question in their mind and maybe in yours also. Question number two, is God unfair in how he extends mercy? All right, he makes his own choice. Is he unfair in how he does that? An important question. Paul's very aware that this would be on people's minds. So he just, again, goes ahead and addresses it. Verse 14, before it gets asked, he writes, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. He says Paul is very clear on whether or not there's injustice or, or unfairness on God's part. He just declares it right away. For he says to Moses, give some example here, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Now, those words sound a little harsh to our ears. It's kind of like sounding some, some bully on the playground, like, I'll do whatever I want to do, and there's nothing that you can do about it, right? That's kind of how it sounds, but actually, that's not what he's saying at all. It's quite the opposite. We need to keep Paul's point front and center here, which is about God demonstrating mercy. We tend to think about mercy extended to a person, and we see that, and we're glad for that, but in our mindset, we oftentimes go today to say, in our mindset today, in our century, that if mercy was extended to these people, if it wasn't then extended to these people, that that's not fair, that that's unjust. It's kind of that everybody gets a trophy mindset, right? Everybody should get the same thing, and if there's some blessing that's brought to one group, some mercy in this case that is brought to one group, we come to the conclusion it's unfair if it's not given to everybody all in the same way at the same time. That's how we oftentimes think. But that's not what's in view here at all. That's not how mercy works. Mercy is not something that people are owed. It is something that is given as grace out of God's kindness. And to give it to one and not another is not a demonstration of a lack of fairness. It's not a demonstration of injustice. Let's say after the service, I've got $300 in my pocket, and, and I'm standing out of the lobby, and 10 of us are standing around there, and I give $100 to three of you, and I give nothing to the rest. That would be merciful on my part. I've just given it to you. I didn't owe it to you. I just gave it to you, but I didn't give it to anybody else. It's mercy on my part, but it's not unfair to the other people. It's not any sort of injustice, injustice because none of you deserved it. <laughs> None of you deserved it. Keep that in mind, all right? So no, no handouts after, after the service, right? All right, well, that's kind of what he is talking about here. Likewise, when it comes to all of mankind, because of our sin, we all deserve to be separated completely and eternally from God. But instead of just casting everyone aside, God chooses to extend mercy, which is not a lack of justice because justice would be to condemn everybody, in their sin. That's what everybody deserved, that God chose to extend mercy to some is a gracious choice. There's nothing unfair about that at all. It does, however, still leave this question of why God chooses some but doesn't choose others. Good question. Paul continues in verse 16 to start to try to bring our heads around it. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. He's just reiterating the point that we made about how it's not how impressive you are versus somebody else that the choice is made because of. This isn't like the grade school gym class where you had two different captains 
and they were just picking teams, you know, back and forth until everybody's chosen. How many of you remember those picking, right? Because you didn't like it because you were afraid you might get picked last or too late, in, and you never liked that. None of us liked that sort of, of selection that was made. Maybe it was made because of a perceived skill level, or maybe just because of friendship, or who wasn't a friend, and those sorts of things. I have a friend who tells a story about when he was a kid. He says that he hated choosing happening that way because it was for a basketball game, and he got picked after the kid with the broken leg. And so it's like uh, he's still a, a bit scarred by that even today. God's mercy, though, isn't about how good you are. It's not about how you've proven yourself. He's not picking teams in who's best and now who's the best one left, and I'll get him, and now who's the best one left, I'll get him. That's not at all how it happens. So still, why some but not others? Well, it's hard to answer completely because we're not told directly, but that doesn't mean that there's not a good answer, a perfect answer, a fair answer. We just haven't been given the full light of understanding to see it. But just because we don't understand something doesn't mean it's not real. I don't understand why Pittsburgh has more cloudy days than Seattle, yet we all live here, but we do right? Just because you don't understand it or it doesn't necessarily make sense to you doesn't mean it's not real. Still, Paul offers us something as he goes on to try to help us to understand or grasp some understanding. He goes on, verse 17, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So we can see God for who he really is. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Paul's again borrowing from the Old Testament to add some insight. We saw he talked about the patriarchs. Well, now he's going to talk about Moses and, and Pharaoh and what was going on in Egypt. In this case, it's the circumstance where Pharaoh had enslaved the Israelites and he wouldn't let them go, and so the plagues come against them. And what the text says is that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. God hardened Pharaoh's heart, which sounds to us like, well, maybe Pharaoh was this awesome dude, but, but God hardened his heart, and so he didn't have a choice but to be a bad guy in the story. And I understand where that sort of a mindset might come from, and a lot of people have wrestled with that. But I think Paul is helping us to get past that here in this situation. For one thing, if you look into Exodus, you can see that Pharaoh's heart was hard long before this circumstance. He's a guy who was trying to wipe out a whole nation of people. That's how hard his heart was. And we see even earlier in the plagues that what is happening is that he's hardening his own heart. And it's not until later on in the plagues that we see that it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. But even there, it's almost, it's almost certain that what, what is, Paul is speaking of is hearkening us back to Romans chapter 1, where you might remember he talked about just giving people over to their mindset, giving people over to their sin, that they were already essentially having a hardness of heart, and God just allowed them to go off in that direction. And it's almost certainly the way that Paul is drawing this in to make reference to here in Romans chapter 9 as well. And in this case, Paul quotes that Pharaoh was allowed into his position so that God, God's might, his power, his rescue of the people might be evident to 
all. Because if God is who He says He is, the most merciful thing that He could do is whatever would help people to recognize His glory and His might and His goodness and His power. Whatever it is that would help people to come to that recognition and to that understanding, it is that which would be just. It is that which would be gracious on His part. So that would have helped Paul's readers to make some sense of what he was teaching, but he knew, okay, that that answers one question, but it probably raises another for them, and it's this. Perhaps you too might ask, is God unjust in finding fault on the part of certain people? Paul continues this assumed question in verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his Will. That's really a follow-up to the question of whether or not Pharaoh was responsible for his own hardness of heart, and we've already seen that he was. But Paul goes on to offer some other thoughts as well, verse 20. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is modeled say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Without the Creator, we wouldn't even have life. And so is the one who's been created really in a position to complain about the the nature of the way that they have been created? Wishing that it might have been a little bit different than what it was or a different experience than what they have had? Then another thought comes in verse 22. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, had endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, because of their sin, they were prepared for destruction because of their sin and their unrepentant hearts, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. This is a look at those who chose to go their own way and do their own thing in direct opposition to the will of God. That could be justification for immediately cutting them off, but in characteristic God-like compassion. He's showing patience instead, presumably giving them opportunity to turn from their sin and their hardness of heart. Then in the next verses, Paul turns to several quotations or examples from the Old Testament prophets. He's gone from the patriarchs to Moses and the Israelites in Egypt on now to the prophets to demonstrate once more how God has worked to make and keep promises again and again and again. He goes to Hosea first, who demonstrates patience and and undeserved love, saying that that's exactly who God is, is what he's trying to say. And then to Isaiah, where he highlights the that despite Israel's unfaithfulness, God is faithful to preserve a remnant of the people through his mercy. Was it unjust to find fault as he did? Not at all, Paul is telling us. He was exceedingly merciful and demonstrated his loving character and nature in the process. So, question after question, he just keeps bringing us a little bit more hope, a little bit more light, and then we come on to this final question, which is this. Is God unmoved by good efforts? By the good efforts of people, kind of trying to do their best. Is God unmoved by that? Well, this comes up as Paul continues in verse 30 then. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching the law? Why? Why? because they did not pursue it by faith, 
but as if it were based on works. Paul says it's ironic that the Jews who were pursuing God's favor stumbled into getting there while the Gentiles who were on the outside found their way in even though they hadn't been making an effort. And the reason he says that that happens is because the Jews who had all of that blessing that he talked about back in verses 4 and 5, because they just used that to let it puff them up and to let them think much of themselves and to be swollen with pride, thinking that they could provide for themselves, where the Gentiles were in a situation where they knew they had nothing to commend themselves before God. And so they rested in what he was able and willing to provide for them. And so they found it where the Jews did not. God was unmoved by the Jews' good efforts. Yes, it was true. Because it was really about self-righteousness, not about God-righteousness. Now this is an interesting conclusion to this chapter. It's been heavily focused up to this point on the divine sovereignty of God. But all of a sudden here at the end, what Paul does is he does this little twist and he's talking now about human responsibility. There have been many, many people who have argued about this down through the ages, that, that these two things are at the opposite end of the pole or the opposite end of the spectrum and they can't operate together. It's kind of one or the other. And Paul says, I don't agree with that. Nowhere does God tell us that we need to choose between the two. They're both a part of God's plan. The fact that we can't fully understand and make them fully mesh in our human understanding, again, doesn't mean they're not true. Or doesn't mean they can't be reconciled together. <clears throat> What's important for us is that we would embrace the truths as they come to us. Even if we can't completely understand how this truth relates together and interacts and is interwoven with this truth, it doesn't diminish this truth. It doesn't mean you should live it out less fully or that one less fully. And God can help us to make understanding ultimately. The truth is that God has chosen many to be his followers and given the nature of our heart that we are ultimately separated from God and we would live for ourselves, the fact that we have any interest at all in pursuing Christ is evidence of the fact that God has been doing a work in our lives, in our heart. He's been touching us. He's been softening our hearts and he's been drawing us toward himself. That's what it tells us. But he also makes it clear that if we want to be a full recipient of that mercy and grace that he is offering us, we need to put our faith and our trust in him, not in traditions, not in heritage, not in our good works, not in how we compare to somebody else, but rather in the work of Jesus on the cross. It's only as we put our faith in him and surrender our lives to his will that we can be saved, that we can have the assurance of eternal life in him. That's what Paul, with all of this, is ultimately urging us to do. It's not so that we might understand, or only so that we might understand the depth of all of this theology and, and election and how that interacts together, the divine sovereignty with human responsibility. It's not, it's not so that we might be able to write some theological textbook book. It's so that we might be changed. It's so that we might be transformed. It's so that we might walk in complete fellowship with God. He is offering us and helping us to understand it can work this way. It does not work that way. And he's helping us to make a choice. And it's a critical choice that we would make. So the question ultimately is, is have you I know that there are questions that come up in our mind, and Paul is trying to help us to navigate our way through them. 
And I trust and I hope that what Paul has said here and how we've tried to unveil it is something that has, has been useful to you. But ultimately, he's inviting us to walk in fellowship with God. Even if we don't understand all the ins and outs of it, he does invite us into fellowship, and it's clear that that comes through faith in Jesus. And I pray that that would be your experience now and going forward. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I do thank you for this text, its depth, its significance, its, its meaning. I thank you for its theology and the doctrine that we find here. And Lord, I do pray that in these moments, as we try to make sense of them, as we try to understand what he is saying to us, that we would recognize the fullness of what he is bringing in our direction. I pray that we would understand the goodness of God in all that he has provided. Lord, I thank you that Paul is willing to just go head on with this and the questions that can trip us up. And uh, sometimes these are things that we just raise as objections because we're not ready to, to jump in. We're not willing to make a commitment of ourselves. But Paul says these things work together. He says, is God unjust? Absolutely not. Is God unfair? Absolutely not. God is righteous and he is good and he has prepared a way that we might have fellowship with him. So friend, if you're here today and you've yet to give yourself over to God because you've allowed questions and nagging skepticism to keep you away from him, Lord, I would pray that you would soften all of our hearts. Even the fact that we are here given our nature, suggests that you're already doing a work in us. So Lord, for any who are here, and friend, if you're here and have yet to put your faith and your trust in Jesus, I would just encourage you to today say, God, my desire is for you. I can't explain all the things, all the questions I don't have answers to, but the answer I have is that you are Lord, and that you came and you went to the cross so that I might have hope, so that I might have life. We thank you that you are our foundation the one who has been established and that we wouldn't allow that to be something that would trip us up, but instead that we would recognize the grace and the mercy of God given to us in the person of Jesus who came to be our cornerstone, the one in whom we can rest, the one in whom we can run and find refuge, the one who is the anchor of our faith and in whom we can find our foundation. So Lord, we do, Lord, we do run to you and we seek your leading and your guidance and your goodness as we put our faith and our trust in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.